Hey, Matthew. It's good to see you. I know, huh? <clears throat> I'm a terrible joke teller, so. I can tell a parable. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of yeast that gets put into the dough and eventually works its way all the way through. Well, welcome. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, this is, uh, we're going to try to do our best to honor teachers today. And uh, we're going to take care of that, especially at the end. So if you're a teacher here, we are going to do our very best to bless you and minister to you and, um, and to honor you. <clears throat> Before we get kicking here, is uh, everybody happy? Good. Good, I'm happy too. And if you're not happy, you're going to be really happy in about, oh, about 40 minutes when I'm done here. And uh, not, not so much because I'm done. You know, maybe the Lord's going to show up on my message, but we've got some giant bouncy things out there, and um, I brought shorts, and I am going to race everybody in here who's willing to race me through the obstacle course, and I'm actually going to fight uh, Sam Crabtree. We're going to get in there. I'm going to kick his butt right in the middle of the obstacle course, so we're going to do UFC obstacle course action this morning. Yeah, I, I learned. I watched this show on the UFC last night. I learned some of their moves. So it's really all it takes. It's not training. It's just about watching the moves. Hmm. Well, good deal. Well, how many people in the how many people in the room right now this morning? And I know several of our teachers are gone. But how many people in the room right now are teachers? Just, yeah, look at all that. Yeah, how, how many people in the room are teachers or work like at, at, in school administration? You work for a school, you know, you're, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, our, our church is about 225 people, and one of the really strange things is, uh, I just, yesterday I, I wrote down informally, just everybody who came to mind, I wrote down on a piece of paper, wrote their name, and we have 25 teachers who go to this church. And uh, that doesn't count administrators, that doesn't count people uh, people like uh, Rusty Hollingsworth, who, who's the athletic director at Campbellsville University. There's, there's, if we took in all of those, I, I don't even know what the number would be. But um, one of the things that, that, that's not just coincidence, it's something that the Lord is actually giving this church to. Yeah. See, when you, when, you, when you can take a piece of paper and you can write down a list of 25 names who are all teachers, and I probably forgot someone, you know? Uh, there may be even more. But when you can put together a list that's that long, um, from such a relatively small church, what it tells you is that the Lord is giving us influence in a certain area in our community. And, um, and that's no accident, and that's something we really need to, to uh, turn our attention to, and I'll, I want to begin to turn, do that this morning, be able to begin to use uh, this influence and begin to see it as something that sovereignly, uh, it was sovereignly given from the hand of God. Not only do we have 25 teachers um, in the church here, but um, it goes even deeper than that. There is a, uh, there's, a, there's a department over the university. It's the ESL department. It's the English as a Second Language department. And within that department, there's, there's only a handful of teachers. And nearly every single teacher who teaches in the ESL department goes here. Now, that's, that's no accident. Here, here's the thing. It blew me away. The Lord really spoke to me in that because, because of this. If the staff and I had gotten together and said, hey, we want to have an effect on international students who show up the inter- at, at the university. We want, to, we want to be there for, to be a kingdom influence over the incoming international students. If the staff and I had even had that thought in our brain and said, let's put in a plan. We've got to get teachers in the ESL department. You understand, we couldn't have done it on our own. So what's the point? The point is God has given us supernatural influence into a whole section of international students who are coming to visit us. And he's doing it through education. He's doing it through teaching. And so here's, here's my personal opinion about the whole deal. My personal opinion is this. Jesus has an opinion about who meets international students who come to the United States and who uh, come for an education. He has an opinion about who teaches them, who meets them, who greets them, and who, who influences their first encounters with America. He has an opinion about that. And here's the crazy thing, Vineyard. He, he, his opinion is us. You know, that's his opinion. So God, he's, he's already at work in our midst, and he's at work within the school systems, and he's at, he's at work within uh, all kinds of subcultures, you know. God has an opinion about who, uh, who Asian students meet when they, when they get here, and, and for whatever reason, it's us. 
along those lines, um, the reason we want to honor teachers this morning is, is fundamentally one basic reason. It's because for the most part, you, and anybody who's ever been a teacher or who is a teacher, they already know this, it's largely a thankless job. You know, you put in your time, you get your paycheck, you go home, no one, no one cares, it seems like a lot of times. But we want to let you know that, that it really does matter, and it matters for this reason. It, it, because in my, in my own personal um, mind on the, on the, on the issue, uh, it's mission critical. You see, the waters we swim in today, in, in the culture that we live in, the, wa- the cultural waters that we live in, and the cultural lo- waters that we swim in, they, they're waters that are polluted with, with uh, pluralism and, um, and, just, and, and, and secular humanism. Uh, you know, those might be new words to you, but this is essentially what they mean. Secular humanism is, is, is essentially the exaltation of, of human intellect and, and a human, uh, uh, the human mind apart from humble submission to God. You know, it, it's, 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 this, it's this thing that we can, we can solve it ourselves. And, and secular humanism basically gets off on the wrong foot at the very beginning because, because of one giant factor. Secular humanism fails to realize that we're the problem, that we're the source of the problem, and that all the problems in the world are essentially people trying to live life apart from God. So the cultural waters that we all swim in are, are waters that are, that are polluted with, cult, with uh, secular humanism. And not only that, but pluralism. And pluralism, re- religious pluralism, pluralism essentially says that all religions are the same, you know? You know, what's good for you, what's, you know, that's fine, whatever works for you, and, you know, I'll do what works for me. And, and, and you know, these are, these are things that are being promoted, and they're being promoted most at school. And you think, well, that's just a big city problem. I want to tell you, it's not a big city problem. It's a hometown problem. It's pervasive. It's everywhere you go. Secular humanism and pluralism, they're in, they're in, they're in the waters that all of us swim in, and especially at school. And so, in my personal opinion, teachers are they're on the forefronts, and they're, they're, on the, they're on the front lines of the battle, and it's mission critical that God has, has his kingdom established in the schools. It's just mission, mission critical. And so what I want to do today is we want to look at Jesus the teacher a little bit. Because here's the deal. This is how important school is. You realize that kids in elementary school spend roughly 30 hours a week at school. How many of, your par- how many of you parents spend 30 hours a week with your kids? You see, here's the deal. Most kids, especially elementary age kids who spend 30 hours a week at school, spend more time at school than they do at home. Not only that, but when you're in high school and you start to change classes based upon subject, when you change classes based upon subject, as a high school student, you'll spend five to six hours a week with your teacher in each subject. See what I'm saying? Five to six hours a week with your teacher in each subject is more than most kids spend at church, if they even go to church, and that's in high school. See, the influence at school is, is dramatic, and if it's, it's massive influence if for no other reason, not just because of the ideologies that are learned there, not just because kids are, are at a really formational time, but because of just the sheer volume of time that's spent there. And so Jesus has to have, have his kingdom influence in the schools. And I've told you guys this a hundred times, but we'll have to go over it again. You know, what the, what the world needs is not more pastors in church. In fact, what the world needs is probably a lot of pastors in church to quit. What the world really needs is more pastors at, at school. What, what the world really needs is more pastors in business. And what the world really needs is more pastors in the neighborhoods. You know, what the world really needs is more pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, and evangelists in schools, businesses, and neighborhoods. We really, we really don't need any more at church. If I can just share my honest opinion with you. So, you know, the school is an awesome battleground for, for, the, for the cultural pollution that, you know, that's just it's so pervasive. It's got its claws, and it's got its claws in me, and it's, got its, it's trying to get its claws in my kids. So I want to look this morning at Jesus the teacher. And the reason I want to look at Jesus the teacher this morning is because Jesus is our model for life. He, he's not just the model for how to be religious. Jesus is not the model for how to do church. Jesus is not the model for how to, you know, to be God's son. Jesus is the model for how to live life. And so if Jesus is the model, if he's the prototype for how to live life, Jesus is the model for how to be the best teacher. Jesus is the model for how to be the best dad. Jesus is the model for how to be the best neighbor. Jesus is the model for how to be the best boss. And um, one of the things that I want us to, to realize this, uh, this morning before we get 
started much further is this. So Jesus is the prototype. He's the, he's the model, not just for a certain kind of life, but he's the model for life with a big capital L. So Jesus is the model for capital L life. And one of the things about Jesus that is most instantly recognizable, one of the, one of the titles that gets placed upon Jesus perhaps quicker than any other is, is teacher. So Jesus is the model for life. And, and the one thing that nearly everyone on the planet can agree about Jesus is this one simple fact, and it's that, that he is a teacher. And so uh, that being said, what I want to tell you this morning is this. I've got a message this morning that will be somewhat pointed toward teachers, but it's actually a message that's for everyone. See, Jesus' life, in the way that he carried out his ministry, the way that he, that he lived his day-to-day life, he embodied a teacher. And, and here's the thing. You may be saying, well, I'm not a teacher. Well, in the kingdom you are, because Jesus, Jesus says this. Jesus looks at his disciples, and he calls, he calls out to people. He says, come follow me, be my disciple. Then at the end of the book, he says, disciples, I want you to go and make disciples. So let me translate that for you. What that looks like is this. It's Jesus saying, Students, go make students. And that's something that we all carry. That's, that's something that's in everybody's mission that's in the room right now. So it's not just, this is not just a message for teachers. It's a message for everybody in the room. There's a, there's a part of our life that Jesus intends for us to pass on to others in a teaching manner. And it may not be standing up in front, standing behind a lectern or giving a lecture. And we'll look at Jesus this morning uh, for one, one simple fact, because Jesus is he, he's unique in all of history. You know, he lived 2,000 years ago, but his teaching, his teaching won't go away. M- more than anyone else, Jesus is the most recognizable person on the planet still. Jesus' is teaching, uh, Jesus' is teaching, all of it, has been the most read teaching on the planet ever. It's been the most studied. It's been the most talked about. Not only has it been the most studied, talked about, and read, but it's also the teaching that has inspired the most. No, no one in all of human history has been the fountain of life like Jesus had. No one, no one in all of history has imparted, has imparted faith like Jesus has. No one has imparted strength like Jesus has. And so he's, he's unique in history. No one's been more talked about. No one's been more studied. No one's life has been a, a greater source of strength. And no one has been so remembered. No, one's, no one is so remembered as Jesus, and Jesus is essentially the great teacher. And I, I want to tell you, uh, I want to compare and contrast here for a bit. No one's more remembered, no one's more talked about than Jesus. And then there's this other guy who's, who's kind of reared his head here in the last few days. We sometimes talk about him in staff. He's an atheist. His name is uh, Richard Dawkins. Anybody in the room ever heard of Richard Dawkins? See, you're already making my point. This guy's kind of a big deal in academic circles right now. He's kind of a big deal in, uh, in circles that like to... Uh, uh, philosophical circles right now. And Richard Dawkins' latest book is uh, called The God Delusion. Title kind of gives it away. But uh, what I want to tell you is this. No one's been more remembered than Jesus, but in 200 years, no one will remember Richard Dawkins. Why? That's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at that. Why is it that Jesus cannot be forgotten? Why is it that Jesus, even after 2,000 years, remains relevant in the culture that we live in? And why is it that some really, really smart guys who have some, who have some things apparently figured out, how is it that they can write books and they'll be utterly forgotten in 200 years? I say Richard Dawkins will be utterly forgotten in less than 100 years. Why? That's what we want to look at this morning. So um, we're going to talk first about Jesus the doer. We're going to talk about four principal, four principal reasons. <clears throat> and the first reason I'd like to talk about this morning is Jesus the doer. This is what Luke writes in his gospel. It's Luke chapter 24, verse 19. There we go. This is what Luke writes. He says about Jesus. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. Luke continues to write in the book of Acts, Chapter 1, verse 1, this is also about Jesus. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what do you notice about those two scriptures right off the bat? You notice that in both scriptures, Jesus is doing and his teaching are together. Have you noticed that? And we've talked about this a little bit at the church, but I want to really get into this just a little bit. This This is one of the most dynamic things 
about Jesus. This is one of the reasons that Jesus can't be forgotten, the reason that he won't be forgotten, the reason that he still imparts strength, the reason that we're here this morning is because Jesus wasn't just a teacher with words. Jesus was a doer. He was a man of action. He, he, he married perfectly doing and teaching. And one of the things that, that we're ultimately guilty of in the church is, is that we have overexalted words and we have underexalted doing. We've overvalued words and we've undervalued doing. So these are two powerful testimonies about Jesus' uniqueness. And you wonder why, why, his, why his teaching lasts? Was well, because he actually did what he says. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. It's a, it's, it's a little parable that everybody knows. Jesus says in the middle of his teaching, he says, Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. What am I talking about at this point? When you read in Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus is teaching his Sermon on the mountain, he's got a large crowd, and he tells everyone, don't throw your pearls to the pigs. One of the ways that you can read the gospel, and you ought to try this sometime, read the gospel knowing that Jesus says, do not throw your pearls to the pigs, and realizing that Jesus always does what he says. Gives you new perspective on the gospel. Understand this, when the Pharisees come to Jesus a little bit later on, they say, Jesus... If you're the Son of God, why don't you do for us a sign? And Jesus refuses to do a sign. Why does he refuse to do the sign for the Pharisees? There's a lot of reasons why. There's there's even contextual theological reasons in the moment. But this is one of the main reasons that he doesn't do a sign for the Pharisees because he does not throw his pearls before the pigs. Later on, this this one really gets me, and and it, it brings a lot of clarity to the Scripture. Later on, Jesus is about to be crucified, He's standing before Pilate. And if Jesus would just get his act together and talk a little more, he could probably talk himself out of being crucified. Yet, Pilate continues to question Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Nothing. Why is it that he's utterly silent? There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons. I'm not saying this is the only one. But this is one of the reasons. Because he will not throw his pearls before the pigs. Jesus is one of the guys who actually did what he said. Not only that, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in his hometown and he's beginning his ministry and he he kicks off his ministry with what we like to call his inauguration speech. And in Luke chapter 4, when he's kicking off his ministry, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 61. You know, the famous passage. You're the sovereign Lord. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to release captives, recovery of sight to the blind. You realize when Jesus says this to his hometown, he lives out the next three and a half years actually doing what he said he would do. When when Jesus shows up at his hometown and he quotes to them from the prophet Isaiah, he's not talking metaphorically. He's not talking metaphorically. Jesus actually spends the rest of his ministry actually opening blind eyes, actually setting captives free, actually preaching good news to the poor. So how is it that Jesus is such a dynamic teacher? It's really simple. He's he's a man who is perfectly, more than anyone else, he's perfectly married uh, the the concept and and stepped into the reality that teaching can't be done alone. It has to be synthesized with doing. And this is a challenge for everyone in the room. You want to be a real disciple who makes disciples? There has to be synthesis. There has to be synthesis between what we teach and what we do. Teachers, you want to have more influence in your classroom? There has to be more synthesis between what we teach and what we do. Here's a, really, here's a really odd and horrible thing that can happen right now. You realize it's possible to get a business degree from 98% of the universities in America, and you can go through four years, study, take all your courses, be credentialed, and at the end of four years, get a business degree, and at the end of four years, you will, there's a really good chance that you will not, you will not, not even want for one lecture set under a, um, a professor who has actually ever been in business. That, you want to know why teaching doesn't hit the mark? You want to know how we can get more influence? You want to know how we can have a, have a deeper impact, one that lasts? There has to be synthesis between doing and teaching. Jesus the doer. Second thing I want to talk to you about this morning is Jesus the gatherer. I want to talk about Jesus the gatherer. You see, it's not just that his words and his actions matched up. It's, it's the way that he assembled his classroom, if I can put it that way. It's the way that he assembled his classroom. Jesus the gatherer. And here's the deal. Jesus taught the masses. 
he, he was such a dynamic teacher, and because he perfectly synthesized doing and teaching, because people knew that when they came to Jesus, they would hear about healing, but not just hear about healing, but that he would actually heal them. Because they knew there was a chance that they could actually get healed, Jesus would teach to the masses, and sometimes he, his teaching to the masses forced him to get into a boat and to step out onto the water, and he would literally have to step, you know, he'd be standing in a boat, you know, bobbing up and down, shouting at people who were just assembled on the, on the hills. But, but that's not the only way that Jesus taught. And I, want, I would like to suggest it's not, even, it's not even the way that Jesus really intended to get his full message across. Though my, from, from my reading of the gospel, Jesus' real intention and his real method for getting the gospel across was to gather who? To gather the twelve to himself. And I want to talk about, just for a second here, Jesus the gatherer. I want to read a couple pieces of scripture to you, a couple long pieces. We're going to put them up so you don't have to turn there, but John chapter 1, verse 35 through 40. This is when Jesus is calling his disciples. And this is what John records for us. He says, the next day John was there again, that'd be John the Baptist, with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when two of the disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he said, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. And it was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, but you'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here we have it. Jesus is calling the disciples, and he's gathering to them. Let's go to the next one, Marcus. This is later on. This is at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's about to leave the planet. This is John 17, and this is Jesus praying to the Father, and he's praying for his disciples. Now, I want you to pay really close attention to, to to all the language here. This is what Jesus prays. He's praying for the 12 that have followed him for the last three, three and a half years. And he says... I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I, have, for I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. What's the point? The point is this, Jesus went about gathering and collecting, but he went about gathering and collecting what God had already given him. What's the point in that? The point in that is this, it, it's actually, gets really, it actually gets really practical for us. Um, for teachers who have classrooms, when, when the kids show up on that first day, that's who God's giving you. It's actually a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit. It's not random. And, and so your classroom your classroom, when you show up and you get that roster, it's actually God's, God's sovereign hand. It was already at work in, in assembling a roster for you. And so when you ask yourself the question, which every disciple should ask themselves, who is God giving me? When you ask yourself the question, who is God giving me? When you show up on that first day and you see that roster, you know who God is giving you. And so now it's, it's time to gather and pour your life in. And, and I would like to suggest, not just to teachers who are going to have a roster and who are going to have a classroom, but this is something that the staff and I have actually been talking about in staff meetings for the last two weeks. And I've been challenging every one of my staff members. To, and I've been asking them this basic question, who is it that God is giving to you in this season? Who is it that God is giving to you in this season? The reason that we have to, that we have to grapple with, uh, with, this, with this, this one question is because it's always God's intention to give someone to us. See, it, it, someone told me, uh, gave me this example one time. They said, always a gardener and always a garden. What's that mean? It means that your life is always in process, but the process of your life doesn't keep you from taking someone else through process. It means my life is always a garden that God is working in, and at the same time, I'm a gardener who's always working in someone else. Why is Jesus so successful? Why has his teaching stood the, 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 the test of time? Why is it that he's had such a deep impact on the world? It's because he's gathered people. He didn't, he, didn't just, he didn't just spew it out there everywhere. He shared life with them. And there's something about real teaching that only comes through shared life and shared experiences. And I, and I know, and I know, that, uh, I know that, that, um, 
that a lot of a lot of what um, is uh, taught in terms of teaching it, it carries such a professional atmosphere that you know um, that it's not you know there there are sometimes concepts that go around that, that say well it's not okay to you know don't take your work home with you and I want to tell you the Lord says absolutely take your work home with you you know and that's not just for teachers who are professional teachers that's for everybody in the room that's for bosses and that's for neighbors and, and that's, for, that's for leaders at every level. It's not okay to make professional distinctions between, between on time and off time. When you're in the kingdom, it's always on. It's always on. So I'd like to suggest that everybody in the room needs to ask, who is it that God is giving me in this season? Also, within this, um, within this point of Jesus as a gatherer, I, I'd like to, Marcus, you can put up the next slide about Luke chapter 9. I'm, I'm going to quickly walk you through Luke chapter 9. And this is a really great study if you want to this week. Just read uh, Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10. It's two chapters. We're just going to put the, 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 the headings to each section of the scripture up on the, on the overhead here. Luke, uh, Marcus, you can put the first one up, Luke chapter 9. The first thing that happens in Luke chapter 9 is that Jesus sends out the 12. And when he sends out the 12, everybody knows this story, they have remarkable success. They come back and they're all excited and say, Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. And, and Jesus is excited as well. But that's not the only thing that happens in Luke chapter 9. The next thing that happens is the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has sent out the 12. They've had remarkable success, success that literally gathers them a crowd of 5,000, if you can see it that way. Jesus begins to teach them. After he begins to teach them, he gets concerned about them having enough, uh, enough food. And so he looks at his disciples. He says, you guys feed them. And the disciples say, there ain't no way. No, I want you to see this. They've just had tremendous success. They've just obeyed the Lord and seen everything he asked them to do come about with great success. Now he says, you feed the 5,000. They say, there's no way. Jesus says, watch what I can do. And so he feeds the 5,000. So at, at this little section of feeding the 5,000, the 12, actually, they, they have a little faith falter, if you can see it that way. And the next is Peter's confession of, of Christ. We're back to another high point. So Luke chapter 9 begins high. We kind of go low, and now we're back to high. Peter gets by revelation that Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's not just a prophet, but he is, in fact, God's own son. He's the Messiah come to earth. High point. Next. We're at the transfiguration. Jesus takes his three best mates to the top of the mountain and they run into the presence of God. There's a cloud up there. Not only is it Jesus, but it's, but it's like prophets of old. Moses and Elijah are up there with him. Peter so messes up the situation that he decides, let's build huts and let's have one for you, Jesus, one for Moses and one for Elijah. It's such a huge mess up that literally God the Father has to speak out of heaven and he has to say, stop it. This is my son. Do everything that he says. So we've gone high, low, high. We're back at the bottom again, aren't we? Oh, it gets better. They come down the mountain and what they find is they find that everything is absolute chaos. That there's a boy with an evil spirit that none of the disciples can kick out of him. So we've had Jesus and his three best mates at the top. The other nine are left at the bottom. They've seen Jesus do the stuff. Not only have they seen Jesus do the stuff, but they've done it at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. They've kicked devils out. Now they're dealing with this demonic spirit who's taken this boy over, and they can't get him out. It's absolute chaos, okay? I want you to see that it's absolute chaos. Jesus is a little bit frustrated, and he says, Man, you guys don't have any faith. Low point. Again, it gets even better. They decide to travel after Jesus kicks the spirit out of the little boy and sets him straight. They're traveling, and while they're on the road, the disciples begin to argue about who's the greatest. Literally, Jesus is here, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. Now, it seems funny to us, except there's something about being around Jesus. There's something about being around Jesus that our true nature will always come out. And so they're arguing, literally, about who would be the greatest. Low point. It's, it's actually getting lower. It's actually going to get lower still, okay? Next one. The Samaritan opposition. Jesus, in this next section of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends the disciples into a Samaritan town to get some hookups because they're hungry and they're thirsty. And when they go into the Samaritan town, the Samaritans, who do not associate with the Jews, decide, you know what, we're not going to feed you guys. We're not going to give you any provisions. Get the heck out of our town. The disciples come back and they tell Jesus, and two of the disciples especially get really aggravated about this, James and John, 
two of Jesus' very best mates, they, they, they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, would you like us to call fire down on the Samaritans? See, it's getting lower. See, well, this is what they're actually asking Jesus about. They're saying, Jesus, would you like us to call fire down and kill the Samaritans? Would you, would you, is it all right if we just wipe them off the face of the planet? They've dishonored you, Lord. Keeps getting lower. These are, now this is Jesus' method of teaching, by the way. I want you to keep this in mind. This is how Jesus teaches. He gathers people in. He sends them out. People screw it up. And then we have Luke chapter 10. What, before, wait, Marcus. What would you think that Jesus would do after failure, after failure, after failure? What would you do if you were Jesus? You'd, yeah, you'd get 12 more, right? The very next thing is Luke chapter 10 and Marcus. What's the next thing that happens? He sends out 72. What's the point? The point is this. Jesus gathers people in and his love and his affection and his concern for people is utterly unconditional. Jesus will not kick you off of his team. I mean, that should be a good word, you know? Jesus will not kick you off his team. You can, you can screw up the transfiguration moment. Like, glory cloud can come down. You, you can be the guy who decides, hey, let's build huts. You can be the guy who can't kick out demons today, but who was really good at it just like two days ago. You, and, you, you know, the kid was ready to throw himself in the fire, you know? You can be the guy who messes up exorcisms after you already know how to do it. You can be that guy. You can be the guy who decides, hey, I'm going to be the greatest, and you guys get in line. You can be the guy. You can be that man. You can be that woman who has massive issues with your own greatness. And you can be the kind of person who would like to kill other people. You can be the kind of person who would like to kill other people because they dishonor you, and none of that will disqualify you from being on Jesus' team. What's the point? Jesus is such a gatherer. He's such a gatherer. He gathers people in, and when he gathers people in, he's taking them in, not because they're the best, not because they're the most talented, not because they have the most potential. He takes them in because they're who the Father gave him. And so everyone in here needs to ask, who is the Father giving me? And pour your life into it. I want to tell you that Christian learning, Christian discipleship, Christian teaching is super professional. It's above professional. There are no lines. There are no boundaries. There are no divisions. There are no, there are no points at which we say we're done. We take it all home with us. Every bit of it. And so for everyone in the room, teachers and, and not teachers alike, because we're disciples. We're students who are called to make disciples. We're students who are called to make students of Jesus. Everyone in the room needs to ask yourself this question. Who is it that the Lord is giving me today? And after you get that settled in your heart, you need to settle in your heart. There is no kicking somebody out. You realize Jesus didn't even kick Judas out. See, Judas kicked Judas out. He... he Jesus, Jesus knew the whole time that Judas was a, was a lying thief and a, and a traitor. And he didn't kick him out. See? That blows me away. That messes my stuff up. Number two, Jesus the gatherer. Number three, why is Jesus' teaching so absolutely reformational? Why is it that we still live with it? Why is it that it's so life-giving? It's because Jesus is a creative genius. Jesus is a creative genius. You understand, you can read the scriptures, you can read the gospels. In fact, I, I, I highly recommend that you read the gospels. <laughs> but you can read those gospels, and when you read the gospels, uh, the next time you do it, I want you to pay attention to how Jesus acts and pay attention to how Jesus talks, because this is something... It's really subtle. It's, it's, the, it's the message that's between the lines. It's the message that's between the words. And when you read it really close and you look for the subtleties, one of the things you notice is that when Jesus heals somebody, he almost never does it the same way twice. Why? Why? Because Jesus is a creative genius. I want to tell you this. The reason that the Lord rarely heals anybody the same way twice, it has, there's theological reasons in addition to the fact that Jesus is creative. But the reason, that, the reason that he rarely heals somebody twice in the same way is because if he healed somebody twice in the same way, you know what we would do? Exactly. 
we would fall in love with the process rather than falling in love with a person. And here's what we would end up with. We would end up with a theology about method rather than a theology of healing in God's heart. And so here's what I want to show you. There's a one time where Jesus, uh, this is one time where Jesus, he, uh, when he encounters a blind guy, he spits in some, he spits in some uh, mud and he makes some rubs on the blind guy's eye. Now listen, this is what would happen. If Jesus healed blind people by taking some spit and some dirt and mixing it together and putting it in people's eyes every time, you know what we would do? We would have how to heal blind people in four easy steps. And it would look like this. Number one, get some dirt. Number two, spit in the dirt. Number three, put mud in the eye. Number four, enjoy your afternoon. Honestly, that's what would happen. But Jesus is a creative genius. And that's not the way he operates. Speaking of how humans love pattern and process, I want, I want to tell you something about pattern and process. Pattern and process is a good way to learn some things, and it actually keeps us from learning other things. Here's the thing about pattern and process. Pattern and process, on the one hand, illuminates, and on the other hand, darkens. It illuminates and darkens at the same time. You say, well, Adam, what in the world are you talking about? This is what I mean. I mean that pattern and process give us confidence and so we can learn something oftentimes through pattern and process. But oftentimes, and this, this happens to, to almost everyone, the pattern and the process, we fall in love to, with it, we, we become so confident in it that it dulls our appetite for what we don't know. And so we end up, at, at the same time there's illumination, there's actually a darkening that happens in pattern and process. And so the Lord, like when He's dealing with, when he's dealing with sick people, He hardly ever heals anybody the same way twice. Why? But, the main reason is this. There is no right way to heal somebody. When it comes to healing, it is, who do you know? And so some solutions are a result of a particular process, but oftentimes the solutions that are, that are a result of a, of a particular process end up being the very processes and solutions that keep us from gathering greater processes and solutions. And this is what I mean. Um, if you guys remember any history at all, everybody, anybody in here remember Sir Isaac Newton? Sir Isaac Newton, he's the father of, of science for the most part. He's certainly the father of modern physics. And he's the father of what's called Newtonian physics. He's the guy that, that, that explained gravity for us. And he explained a lot of what's happening in the heavenlies. With, uh, with the stars and the sun and the moon. He, he explained how all of this operates. And he settled once and for all at that time that the earth actually does go around the sun because up to that point, people were still in the mindset that the sun goes around the earth. It's really strange. But Isaac Newton, so Isaac Newton has a breakthrough. By the way, Isaac Newton loved the Lord. Loved the Lord with his whole heart. He actually loved theology more than he did science. This is what's crazy. So Isaac Newton has a breakthrough and he gives the world processes for understanding the heavenlies. Okay? He gets breakthrough and he gives people processes for understanding the heavenlies. The problem is, a couple hundred years pass, and the processes that Sir Isaac Newton gives us for understanding the heavenlies, they don't, they don't explain to us some of these new things that we're learning about and, and we're beginning to understand. Atoms. We don't understand what's happening to atoms. And so scientists, for years, they would try to apply Newtonian physics to protons, neutrons, and electrons. And guess what? It doesn't work. In fact, the more that you give yourself to Newtonian physics, the more that you are blinded to what's actually happening in, in, with electrons, neutrons, and protons. What does it take to understand electrons, protons, and neutrons? It takes a guy by the name of Albert Einstein in quantum mechanics. See, here's the deal. Processes, they're good. But processes on the one hand, illuminate, and the thing that we always have to understand is, while they illuminate, at the same time, they're darkening, to us, darkening us, oftentimes, to greater revelation, greater insight, and greater knowledge. So, Newtonian physics, one level, takes a whole different kind of thought, a whole different kind of, of understanding to understand what's happening with protons, electrons, and neutrons. And guess what? Now we have a new theory that's coming out. It's called string theory. Some of you all may have read about it. 
And string theory is, is the beginnings of a synthesis between Newtonian physics and, and, uh, and the physics that uh, Albert Einstein gave us. So we can't fall in love with process. We have to be people who are on the creative edge. And I'd like to suggest to you that the real key in the creative process for Jesus, but not just for Jesus, for us as well, is the fact that Jesus had such a dynamic connection to the Father. This is what Jesus says, really famous words in John chapter 5, verse 19. He says, Jesus gave them this answer. He says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. So every time Jesus healed and every time Jesus spoke, it was connected to the revealed will that he learned from his Father. And why is this important? This is, this, is, this is a little revelation for us. Every time that Jesus healed, every time that he spoke, it was connected to a divine insight, divine revelation from his Father. And who is the most creative person in all the world? God the Father. Listen, there, there is no one more creative than God the Father. He created the worlds with words, okay? There was nothing. He spoke. There was something. There is no one more creative than God the Father. He's so creative. God values creativity at such a level that not even two snowflakes are the same. You can go into a forest with literally millions of trees and you'll not find two trees that are the same. There's a couple hundred of us in the room and in the house today and none of us are the same. What's the, what's the point? The point is this, is that Christians should be the most creative people on the planet. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside. We have access to the Father who is, who is His nature is creativity. His nature is creativity. So we have, we have access to pure creativity. Christians should be the most creative people in the world. And, and I would like to point out that just historically, most of the major breakthroughs that have been made in science and music, because I've read a little bit more about those two things, most of the major breakthroughs that have been made in science and music in history have been made, with pe made by people who knew God. It's, it's just a fact. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not creative, and I want to tell you that's not possible. I want to tell you two more keys to being creativity and, and, and applying creativity to our life in the way that Jesus did. One of the keys, that we, one of the keys and one of the ways that we can apply creativity to our life in, in a greater way is, um, is when we begin to give our passions, when we begin to give ourselves and when we begin to give our passions to solving problems, when you begin to give your passion and when you begin to give yourself to being the kind of person who solves problems, if you will, if you will allow your, your passions and, and problems to meet, that's where creativity lives. See, non-creative people are those who have settled. Non-creative people are people who are convinced that life is just what it is. But creative people are those whose passions cause them to contact the wrong in the world for change. See, creativity is, is forever linked to problems, being a, being a problem solver. And you think about Jesus' own life and ministry, and you know it's true. Not only that, but creativity is rooted in giving. Jesus says it's better to give than it is to receive. Creativity is actually rooted in giving. And I'll give you a little example here. Uh, every Christmas, and I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about, on this one, but every Christmas, uh, Heather and I, we set aside a Christmas budget, and we'll just, you know, it's just, this is the budget, how much, how much, Adam, and we just talk it over for a day or two, and we go, this is the budget, X, and then we go, well, how many people are we going to buy for, Y, you look at it, and you go, this is not going to work, <laughs> but somehow Heather makes it work every time, and she makes it work so that everyone is not just has something, but everyone is blessed. How is it that everyone can have something, not just have something, but be blessed at Christmas time when the money is not enough for the people? I mean, it's, it's sort of a trite example, but it's creativity. Creativity solves problems. So three, Jesus is a creative genius. Number four, Jesus is a deep thinker. Jesus, the deep thinker. And um, at this point, I want to talk about the fact that our culture, it changes, it changes so rapidly. In fact, it's changing more rapidly today. Like even 
today, the 1st of August, 2nd of August, is changing more rapidly today than it was even one year ago. Change in, change in the world today is actually exponential. It's exponential to the point that cutting edge, the concept cutting edge is literally, it's just theory. There's, there's, no, one, there's no way for anybody to be cutting edge or to, to stay on the cutting edge because it's always further out there in front of you. So change, it, it's, it's, it's a dynamic influence in the world. And I've got a, I've got a YouTube video I want to show you guys that, that, uh, that will highlight some of this. Some of the most famous fashion designers in the U.S. today have been asked to forecast what Eve will look like in A.D. 2000. One idea is a dress that can be adapted for morning, afternoon or evening. It's the sleeves what does it. According to another artist, one dress of the future will consist of transparent net. The net uh, probably to catch the males. Apparently in <laughs> A.D. 2000 we shall be having a hair-raising time. Yet another designer goes so far as to believe that skirts will disappear entirely. Shoes will have cantilever heels, and an electric belt will adapt the body to climatic changes. The lightly clad woman of tomorrow, ooh, swish, will move in an atmosphere that's scientifically kept at the right temperature. The future bride in a wedding dress of glass. What the groom will wear, apart from a worried look, isn't mentioned. A dress of aluminium, with a sash to change it for afternoon or evening, and an electric headlight to help her to find an honest man. As for him, if he matters at all, there won't be any shaving, collars, ties, or pockets. He'll be fitted with a telephone, a radio, and containers for coins, keys, and candy for cuties. Uh, have we have we made it there yet? I love the guy. I love the guy has the phone installed, like right here. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny? Yeah, it's half a joke. It's half a joke, but it's. But they got some things actually right. You know why they got some things right? These guys were actually just being creative, just putting some things out there. And the next thing you know, this was made in the 1930s, and it was actually, some of this has come around. But the point I want to make is this, that culture is actually changing so dramatically fast, the, the speed at which something becomes obsolete is, is becoming more and more quick. Here's the deal. You can go today, and you could go to the Apple store, and you could buy yourself a brand new computer, you could bring it home, you could get it out of the box, you could plug it in, and you could thoroughly enjoy it. And, and at the moment that you've plugged it in and powered it up and, and put in your password and, and you know, opened up Safari and began to uh, surf the Internet, at that very moment, that computer is obsolete. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? It's done. Steve Jobs has already got something better in the tube. I mean, every single time I buy an Apple computer, every single time, uh, the month later, they release the new one. It's like 90 times better for $100 less. And, um, and this is one of those, uh, which brings me to another point that, that, that's been going on at least for the last 25 years, especially. There's a, there's a, there's a rule that's basically been happening, especially with computer chips, and is, especially as it deals with our ability to store information on computer chips. And roughly, and it goes like this, roughly every 18 months, Computer, uh, the, the capacity of computer chips goes up and simultaneously the size and price goes down. It changes every 18 months. I would, uh, my guess is that's probably speeding up even now. So we live in this world where things are changing and information is literally exploding. And part of the dynamic that happens when you live in a culture where everything changes and information explodes, where, where technology becomes more accessible, smaller, and cheaper, when you live in this kind of culture, one of the things that happens is we become the kind of people who value information and knowledge over wisdom. And this is one of the things that makes Jesus a standout in, 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 you know, among all other teachers and among all other people. 
We've become the kind of people who value information when we've become the kind of people who value knowledge over and above wisdom. But Jesus' teaching and his parables, they're so rich. See, there's layers of truth. There's layers of truth that are in Jesus' teaching and there's layers of truth that are in his parables. It's so layered and so brilliant that literally my seven-year-old son can pick up the Bible and he can read it he could read Jesus' teaching, he could read Jesus' parables, and my seven-year-old son could read it and gather something, and his heart could be changed even now. And at the same time, I'm 31 years old, and I've been reading, reading Jesus' words intensely at least for the last 18 years. So I've been reading Jesus' words for 18 years. Some of you have been reading Jesus' words for much longer than that. And Jesus' words, they're, they're so deep, they're so rich, they're so brilliant, and there's so much truth layered in there that literally every time I come to the Scriptures, I can gather something new. And I want to give you two examples of what I'm talking about in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, Jesus, he, uh, he gives a, a pretty intense word. This is what he says. He says, this is about adultery. He says, you've heard it says, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pretty plain, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one body part than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better, to you, for, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Who here thinks that Jesus really wants us to gouge our eyes out and to cut our hands off? Anybody? You got any takers on that? Anybody here think that Jesus really wants us to gouge our eyes out and to cut our hands off? If that's not what he's getting at, what is it that he's getting at? See, Jesus' teaching requires that you stop, that you slow down, that you cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and that you think deeply about something. Teaching that remains at information level, teaching that remains strictly about facts, dates, and personalities, doesn't form the mind in, a, in the kind of way that it, takes, uh, that, 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 that it takes for a person to be successful in a day where information is as cheap as paper. Understand what I'm saying? See, we have to be the kind of, of people who, who, who have thought deeply about something and especially thinking deeply about Jesus' own words. So what is it that Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, if there's something in your life that's causing you to sin, he's actually saying, deal ruthlessly with it. Do whatever it takes to get it out of your life. Is he saying, cut your hand off and gouge your eye out? No. He's saying, if the computer is keeping you addicted to porn, he's saying, throw your computer away. That's what he's saying. And that's a word for probably some people in here. Throw your computer away. That's what the Lord's getting at. But you won't get that message if you just read it. You have to stop. You have to slow down. You have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and think deeply about something. Just this week, I spent my entire week reading the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And um, I saw something in Matthew chapter 5 this week that I've never seen before. It, it comes from verses 43 through 48. I want to read this to you. You guys have all heard this. This is about loving your enemies. Jesus says... You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the, on the evil and the good and sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's pretty basic, isn't it? Everybody knows what to do. Love your enemies. See, even my seven-year-old son could get that. But I've read this literally for 18 years, so probably hundreds of times in my life. And one, you know one of the things I saw this week that I've never seen it, and perhaps a lot of you guys have already seen it, but it was new to me this week. It, it's, in verse, it's connected in verse 44 and 45. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You realize that sonship and daughtership is connected to whether or not we love our enemies? Not only that, but Jesus is a kind of person who always does what he teaches. And Jesus is who? He's the Son of God who did what? Who loved enemies. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. See, Jesus' teaching is layered and is dynamic, and it requires slow and considerate, deep thinking that cooperates with the Holy Spirit. So for those of us who are, who are discipling people, for those of us who are 
in charge of classrooms, I, wanna, I, wanna, I would like to suggest that we, that we incorporate doing, that we, that we become people who gather, that we incorporate new levels of creativity, and that we, that, we, that we teach people from a perspective of teaching them how to use their mind and to be deep thinkers and not getting caught up in information only. Information is as cheap as paper. We have to be the kind of people who can look through information and find truth. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. That's really all the message that I want to get to this morning, but we really want to honor teachers this morning. And so if you're a teacher this morning in the house... Would you, uh, would you please stand up? Because we want to, uh, we really want to, we want to partner with you here just for a moment. There's several here. That's so good. Thank you. All right, here's what I want to do. If you're on the ministry team this morning, and even if you're not on the ministry team, just some of those of you who are gathered around these people, I want you to just gather around, lay hands on them, and, and we're going we're gonna to begin to just ask the Lord to, to bless this year. Because I think the Lord wants to do more than inform minds. I think he wants to give people vision for life. All right, everybody's got some. Oh, yeah, Lawlers, come on, ministry team. Thanks. I'll tell you what, I'm going to pray here in just a second, but just some of you who are gathered around these teachers, just begin to, just begin to pray for them. And begin to just begin to uh, just prophesy life and, and prosperity over their over their classroom, even now. Out loud. It's okay, this is family time. Thanks, Lord. Thanks, Lord. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the ministry team this morning, if you get some prophetic words for them, I want you to just, I want you to give those to them. Mm-hmm. You guys can keep on ministering, but I want to I pray for the teachers as well. Father, we ask that this year in these classrooms, for these, uh, for these teachers who are represented here, Father, we ask that this year would be, would be a breakthrough year in learning. God, we ask that there would, be, there would be literally the Holy Spirit would be in the classroom with these teachers, that there would be creativity and ingenuity. God, we ask that, that you would impart to every one of these teachers new levels of creativity and ingenuity. Father, I ask that you would, that you would anoint them with your own heart. God, I ask that you would give Every teacher here, new insight in how, to, in how to gather people to them. Father, I ask that, that you would give them literally spiritual gifts, God, gifts of ministry that can, that can cut through uh, the issues that arise in classrooms. God, I ask that you, would give, that you would give supernatural encouragement to teachers who are dealing with students who, who come from just horrible homes. God, I ask that you, would, that you would allow these teachers these men and these women, to be a voice of truth. God, I ask that you would give them your heart. And Father, I ask that there would be just a brand new level, a brand new breakthrough in learning. God, I ask that, that, that kids who have historically been underachievers, God, I ask that under the direction of these men and women, that these, that these kids who are represented uh, by the teachers who are here this morning. God, I ask that this would be a breakthrough year and that they would blow through the ceiling that's above them. God, I ask that there would just be tremendous breakthrough in learning. God, I ask that, that F students would be, would be A and B students this year. God, I ask that kids who don't care would get a vision for their life. And Father, we ask that you would impart vision to the teachers. And God, I ask that you would give them prophetic gifts so that they could, so that they could impart vision, creative ways to impart vision to kids who are hopeless with no vision. Father, we also ask that, that every teacher in the room, God, that you would honor them, that you would honor them above their peers. God, I ask for favor and honor on every teacher here above their own peers. God, I ask for open doors. Lord, would you op- open up open doors in school systems and administration. God, would you give favor with superintendents and principals, and would you give favor with teachers around the hall. Father, I ask that even, even this week before school starts, God, I ask that you would that you would give these teachers 
uh, dreams and visions. God asked that the still small voice of your Holy Spirit would begin to speak and whisper in their ear and that it would lead to ingenuity and breakthrough in the classroom. We ask for this in your name, Father. Amen. Hey, let's hear it for teachers, huh? Yeah. You can have